Hey, this is Homer Hargrove. I'm the pastor of Grape Top Church, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for connecting with our family today, and I hope this message inspires you and that it makes a difference in your life. Enjoy the message. We have been going through this series, The Living One, and how many of you like this series, The Living One? Yeah, it's been good, right? Okay, got some praise going on. Um, what's really been, uh, I feel like, interesting about this series is that we're really, uh, someone told me last week that we're talking about things that, that you don't generally hear about in church. Y'all remember, those of y'all were here, y'all remember someone saying that? And yes. what is most uh, interesting about someone saying that we're hearing about things that we that aren't talked about in church is that we're actually only talking about Jesus <laughs> and we're talking about revelation and that's literally all we did was was talk about Jesus revealing himself to his people and that alone was this concept that seemed foreign to church that's that's bizarre right and i really believe that this uh entering in this new year we're now at the last sunday of January and this, this starting this first month where we're just focusing on Jesus and how he reveals himself to us who he calls us to be we're going to continue this series into February and so this is not going to just be a one month series we're going to be going through it for a while um, and just really looking at who Jesus is and what's special about this series is that there's a billion things that we could talk about because of everything going on um, you know, I heard, I saw a, a pastor that I follow post something online saying, uh, and it was a list in, of just over, over dozens of reasons of why people t- have emailed him and messaged him saying oh, why they're not going to go to his church anymore. And there were reasons, uh, it ranged from um, you, you guys don't talk enough about pro-life, you guys don't support pro-choice. Um, you haven't uh, denounced Black Lives Matter group as a Marxist group. You haven't uh, approved of Black Lives Matter. Do Black Lives do not matter to you? You know, it is like uh, are, you have not said anything about supporting Trump. You have not said anything about being against Trump. And, and it was just like the list of everything that we've experienced as a whole and being uh, of, from both sides of not making a stance on certain issues and being, well, that's why I'm not going to your church anymore. None of the reasons were because you didn't preach Jesus faithfully. None of the reasons were you didn't keep your integrity morally. They were all just based off of these opinions that had really not to deal with Jesus at all. And so for us to just focus on Jesus, I really believe that that is a unifying factor when it comes into, um, when it comes into, sorry, We just lost our, I lost my notes right now. Um, My iPad just said connection lost, duh. Um, Talking only about Jesus is a unifying factor when it comes into the world that we live in, when everything in the world calls us to to divide. Y'all feel what I'm saying? And so let's let's start with today's message. In today's message, I want us to first share the the baseline of this series, and that is in Revelation 1.18. This is the most powerful verse in Revelation, and it's Jesus talking. He says, I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. 
and I hold the keys of death in the grave. This verse gives so much power to the reason of our faith. The reason of our faith, the foundation of our faith, should be that Jesus rose from the dead. He not only died, that's only one part of it, but the fact that he rose from the dead is what makes him king. That's what makes him the son of God. He's the living one. And if he didn't raise from the dead, then our faith would just be a nice idea, but it wouldn't be true. It wouldn't mean that our sins have been forgiven. And so today we're going over the third church um, out of the seven churches that we've been looking at. And I'm going to just start reading as we talk about, start this message, the two-edged sword. The two-edged sword. This two-edged sword has two meanings that we'll get into in a little bit. But let me, I'm going to read through the whole verse, uh, the whole uh, letter to the church first, and then we're going to break it down verse by verse. All right? So starting off, it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold firmly to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who kept teachings of Balak to put the stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So you too have some who in the same way hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly. And I will wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will give some, hidden, some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except the one who receives it. So, one thing that we've been learning about Revelation is that there's a lot of prophetic imagery to everything Jesus is saying. The first thing we're going to look at is how Jesus reveals himself to be mission-focused. Now, if you remember, when we see the church of Ephesus, when we saw the church of Smyrna, Jesus reveals himself a different way to each of these churches. To this church, he's... Uh, um, he shows himself where, in a way where he, Jesus is always calling you closer to him. Jesus is always calling you closer to him. It starts off like this. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum, right, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. So I think it's safe to say if for this church, if Jesus reveals himself starting out as a two-edged sword, it's going to be like pretty intense. <laughs> I mean, it is like a that the other churches is like I'm the I'm the one who holds the the aim, the the stars and the and the lampstands. And now it, he's just revealing himself uh, revealing himself as a sword a, a two-edged sword. This is a really intense analogy for him to show himself. And it, it really prompts us to like, okay, like, buckle your seatbelts. Like, this is going to, he's going to tell us something intense. And what it shows is just, the, just this two-edged sword. What it also represents other, t other places in Scripture is it says the Word of God is a double-edged sword. 
that is sharper than any sharpest. Uh, it's the word of God is sharper than any sharp, uh, the sharpest two-edged sword. It cuts between our souls and our spirits. It, it cuts between our joints and our marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. That's what scripture describes the word of God. And here Jesus makes this connection that he is the word of God. He's the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. And so he's revealing these, uh, this way to focus on the fact that he has the authority of the word of God. He has the authority. And this is a big theological understanding because there's some denominations, I, would, I wouldn't even call them Christian, Christian denominations, that do not attribute Jesus as, as the e- eternal power of being part of the Trinity. They don't believe in the Trinity at all. They believe Jesus is separate from God the Father. But Jesus reveals himself in a way all throughout Scripture that him and the Father are one, just as the Holy Spirit and him are one. It's the image of the Trinity. And this shows that he has the authority of the Word of God. And when he speaks to us, he speaks to us with authority. I really feel like one thing in this series that we've been learning is that Jesus is not the delicate, white, thin-lipped European dude that we grew up seeing in this weird painting. But that Jesus is actually not, uh, even though he is gentle to our hearts, he's gentle to us as people, he's gentle to the sinner, he also carries an authority with him. He, he's not timid or shy, but he has an authority when he walks into the room. And when he speaks to people, he doesn't just say things flippantly or he doesn't beat around the bush, but he really is direct as he speaks to us. Y'all feel what I'm saying? And what we also see is that he knows our hearts and our desires. The fact that he reveals himself as a sharp two-edged sword, he references, um, even when Paul says that the word of God exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. So what he's saying here is that I know your hearts and desires. The one who knows your hearts and desires. That's how he's addressing this church. He's saying, I see past everything. I know what you're really thinking. I know what you're really feeling. And, it, and finally, it shows that he cuts what is unholy from what he is making holy. You know, that scripture, it describes the word of God, this two-edged sword, that it's, it exposes our innermost thoughts and desires that, that is such, uh, the, the purpose of a sword is to cut away. And when we look at Scripture, Paul even tells us when he's talking about how we no longer are saved by our works. Every time you see that in Scripture, when it says you are not sa- you're not saved by your works, we cannot, be, we cannot earn our salvation by our works. What he's commonly referencing is the, the actual practices of the Jewish culture in order to be made right with God. And the biggest uh, the biggest practice was circumcision. And there's a part in scripture where he says, don't circum- uh, it doesn't matter. circumcision of the flesh doesn't matter, but it's circumcision of the heart. He's saying cutting away the, the fleshly things of our heart is what God cares about most. And so Jesus showing himself here is, is saying, I'm talking to you because I'm wanting to, to work on your heart. I'm wanting you to grow closer to me. Notice that this, this first quote we said was, Jesus is always calling you closer to him. Have you noticed that the more that you get closer to God, the more things seem to just be brought up in your life? Like when I gave my life to Christ at first, 
the first things that I was like more so concerned about when it came to like repentance or changing from sin was like, okay, I'm not going to fight people anymore. <laughs> like, okay, I'm, I won't do hardcore drugs. I'm going to stop doing popping pills and doing cocaine. I'll just smoke weed. Like it was, a, it was just like one step at a time. But then the closer I would get to God, all of a sudden it went from just like these things that were morally wrong for most people to all of a sudden I was getting into this Christian morality to where all of a sudden I started uh, hearing myself when I would cuss. I'm like, why, why do I feel different about talking this way compared to before? And see, that's you growing closer to Christ. And the closer we get to Him, the more of our sinfulness is revealed. It's like it's just like an osmosis of being closer and closer to this holy God the, the, it's, he is just pure light that the closer we get, the more the hidden darknesses we have are exposed. Another, the way that Proverbs gives this imagery is that we are like metal or, or gold being purified by fire. And that the longer we're in this heat of God's presence, the, the longer we're uh, under that fire, the more impurities rise to the top. Y'all understand what I'm saying? And so it's, it's not even Jesus trying to come at these people's necks, but it's the fact that they are growing closer to God to where he says, all right, here's the next step. And he talks to them plainly and clearly. Y'all feel what I'm saying? And so Jesus is mission focused. It's very different than the idea of progressive Christianity, which, which pretty much says that Christianity is all just about our emotions and God just making us feel better about our insecurities. That's a, that's a majority of progressive Christianity. And, and it, it's, not, it's more so about benefiting a, a, a person's self-identity uh, self than it is about uh, bettering a person's spirituality. It's more so about emotionalism than it is about spiritualism. Y'all follow? Um, and so this is really showing the, the way that, just in this first verse, is showing that he's very mission-focused in us becoming a holy bride for him as the church. Now, this leads us into our next point, which is understanding but strict. Jesus reveals himself to be understanding but strict. Jesus knows and understands our shortcomings, but also sees past our excuses. Jesus knows and understands our shortcomings, but also sees past our excuses. I want to make it clear that as we go into this message, that this is not a, a Bible-beating message. This is not a get right or get left message. But that this is a message where a lot of us have been feeling those urges from the Holy Spirit to grow in some way. But we have made so many hesitations and reasons of why we can't do that. Y'all dig what I'm saying? I mean, it's it, one of the most common aspects. Uh, it's like the, the fundamentals of our faith is, is praying, reading the Bible, and going to church. Those are really fundamentals to a, a, a Christian. And when we look at ourselves, we can see that every one of those aspects, we have, we have made reasons or excuses why we can't do that today. Y'all dig what I'm saying? I got three kids now, okay? <laughs> like, 
If there's ever been a time where I have slacked on like my prayer life, on my on me reading the Bible, dog, I get it. Like life is just crazy sometimes, and we're never gonna be perfect. This isn't to make you feel bad about the times where you're like I was just so tired. It was a crazy day, dude. Sometimes our best is is twenty percent because our day is so intense. Our days are so draining, whether it's emotionally, physically, mentally, we get drained. Those are the things that God understands. But what, what, this, what we're about to talk about is that he also sees past the times where we are simply making excuses because we've gotten so comfortable to having one hard day after another to where we never end up moving. Y'all feel what I'm saying? And there's a big difference. We all get into ruts, but the moments that we just set up camp in that rut is, are the moments where we start making excuses. There's a huge difference from having a bad day and setting up camp there. Y'all dig that? And so let's go into this next verse. And that is in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold firmly to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So this first glimpse Jesus, Jesus is really acknowledging what this church does well. What's, if, you notice, if you notice that this church, he doesn't necessarily have any affirmation other than uh, simply recognizing that they kept their faith in the midst of adversity. When we looked at the church of Ephesus, they were like killing it. He said, I know how, how good your works are. He was saying, I know your works and how hard you you." you uh, make a difference. He's he's literally uh, uh, recognizing their accomplishments for the things that they do on earth. That's a a huge feat for Jesus to say, I, I see what you're doing and you're doing a great job, but you lost your first love. Here, this church doesn't have any recognition for necessarily anything noticeable or great that they've done in their community, besides the simple fact that G, that Jesus praises them for not denying him when faced with intimidation and even death. It says that this, this one person, Antipas, he says, my faithful one, my witness, was killed among you. Um, he's recognizing that you didn't, th- you, this church did not lose their faith even when they were faced with something so detrimental like persecution. This is an amazing thing still. A lot of Christians today, like I shared last week, I think the, when it comes to the end times, and it says that many even believers will fall away it, uh, when the Antichrist comes at the end of days. I believe that most of those believers will be in America. I don't think it's going to be in China where people are, are literally persecuted and sent to concentration camps for having their faith. I think it's people that are so comfortable with their faith now that when, that, uh, when in our culture we deny God just if we can't make a bill on time. You know, we get mad at God if we get a flat tire and it's our fault. We didn't even change the tires when we should have. And we're, God, you're always messing with me. Why do you got to keep picking on me? And that's just stuff that we go through in life and we, we find reasons to curse God. And so this church, they, this is still a great acknowledgement, but they didn't necessarily do anything uh, noticeable. But even with that, Jesus acknowledges every effort that we give to him, and it never goes unnoticed. 
And so I, I really wanted to make that a backbone in your mind before we go on. Jesus acknowledges every effort we give to him and it never goes unnoticed. So now backing up to the, those times where you did have a really hard day, you were drained mentally, you were drained physically, and you still chose to try to seek God in some way, Jesus sees that and he doesn't go like, well, you didn't the other day. He's not like that. But he acknowledges every effort. The Bible says that even if you give a cup of water to the least of these, then how great your reward is in heaven. That, that is such a powerful statement. A cup of water is so accessible. It, it is so easy to, to share with anybody. It, it's like almost like the minimal nutrients that a body needs. And yet he's saying, great is your reward in heaven, and it will not go unnoticed even if you give a cup of water. How much more when you're really trying to do your best? And even if we look away from the internal aspects, but even when we're trying to make a difference outwardly, and we're, that those times where you reach out to someone and you talk to someone, you, uh, you share your faith even if it's just like a small little uh, invite to church. You know those times where like, well, I just invited them to church and you know, I didn't really do anything. Even those little moments, God says, that is special. Y'all feel that? All right, now let's go into the, the next one. <laughs> and the next, the next verse, it says, But I have a few things against you. Because you have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who kept teaching, the, kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality, so you too have some who in the same way hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So, just like we, we learned in the first week that the Nicolaitans were pretty much um, people who called themselves believers, but uh, taught people that it was completely okay to practice the pagan sexual revelry and immorality of the, of the surrounding area. That they just said, yeah, as long as you believe in Jesus, but you can still go to the temple and have sex with all the prostitutes. It's okay. Orgies are fine. Jesus doesn't have a problem with it. All right. Imagine that quote taken out of context. <laughs> um, Jesus, what he's showing here is that he does not permit darkness to mix with light. That's why when, when he calls us closer to him, it, it beckons a type of change. Because we are just naturally sinful. We're naturally dark. And when he calls him, us to himself, there is some type of beckoning uh, of, of uh, cutting away that happens inside of our hearts in one way, shape, or form, even if it's something as simple as forgiving somebody. Y'all dig what I'm saying? And he, does, he, he shows himself to literally just say, there is no evil in the midst of good. And it reminds me of the times where he was teaching the disciples and he was talking about how a little yeast permeates through the whole batch of dough. And he, he, he was talking about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees of that time. He's, but it also shows the same, that it, in other places, it shows the same way with sin. That sin is like a little yeast that permeates through the whole batch of dough. When you, it, uh, uh, I feel like a simple way to understand the idea of purity and the sense of yeast is if we had a glass of water right here. And I were to tell you guys, this is a clean glass of water. It's purified. But... 
there's only one drop of sewage water in it. Would you feel comfortable to drink it? No? It's just one drop of sewage water. What if it was baby sewage water? Babies are like, that sewage is just breast milk. Like, <laughs> See, even just one drop taints the entire glass of water. Y'all feel what I'm saying? It permeates through the, all of the water. It spreads. And Jesus, the reason he calls us to this growing and closer to him that has a constant cutting away is because even if you look at your own life, think about the times where you allow that one thing that in the back of your mind you know you shouldn't have done or shouldn't be doing, but you kept doing it anyway. Didn't it eventually just take you over to where you ended up doing more and more and more and going into other things that were even worse and all of a sudden you had to have this big come back to Jesus moment because you allowed that one little thing to, to take hold in your life. That one little tiny thing ended up growing into something huge. And so that's why when he calls us, it's a natural reaction for us to grow closer that there's a cutting away. And in this context, to this church, he specifically calls out three references to sin. And I want us to, to look at them because I feel like they're really powerful when we unpack them. When he says, holds to the teachings of Balaam, in, in the Old Testament, when Israel was still being um, supplanted into Canaan, there's a moment where a, a king called Balak called for this prophet Balaam to come and curse the people of Israel. And it's a really popular story to where um, to where. He refuses to go because uh, God already told him that he's not going to curse Israel, but he has blessed them for that land. And Balaam says, well, I can't say anything that God won't let me say, so don't even bother. And they keep urging him and promising more and more riches. Eventually he goes, and it's a story where if you read it, it talks about a, a donkey that ends up talking to him um, to rebuke him. But eventually he goes, and we see this, this huge exchange of, of Balaam end up blessing Israel instead of cursing them. Well, what happens after that part of the story uh, is that Balaam, desiring the riches that the king was promising him, started teaching Balak that if he were to tempt Israel to sin, then God would, would not be able to bless them because, of his, his, uh, because they would be going against his covenant with him, what he's already commanded them to do. And so they, what the what Balak instructed all the people to do was send their, their virgin daughters into the land and convince them to, to have sexual immorality with the, the pagans of the land. And which eventually got them, uh, and when they were with these women, um, they, they, often, they would also start eating the, the food that they would sacrifice to the idols. And so in just that fail swoop, um, lust stole the heart of, of these, uh, these people of Israel to where they went from worshiping a holy God only for him. We're, we're going to live these pure lives and enter the land he's given us to where it's like, dang. And where they went from, and all of a sudden they start having uh, all this revelry, all these sex orgies, and start sacrificing to idols. And so we see a lot of that here, but the main part that when he, so when Jesus references who hold to the teachings of Balaam, what he's saying is that, those who are manipulating people or scripture in order to get what they want. Using scripture or people as a means to an end. 
Now, if you've ever been on the side of being used, you know how crummy it feels, right? It's a horrible feeling. Now, when you mix in a spiritual authority, something that you're supposed to be able to trust, and they manipulate scripture in order to use it for their own gain. That's pretty wicked, right? How many, how many offering calls do we have to listen to to find, <laughs> to find a manipulation there? How many times do we have to, uh, how far do we have to look to find people who manipulate scripture in order to, uh, to get what they want? How, how far do we have to look to find, uh, to find anyone that uses people as a means to an end? I mean, we could just look at our uh, local officials, right? <laughs> it's a quick place to look. All right now, all of, the, all of the chaos and division and all of the confusion that is happening, happening with politics right now is because so many politicians and so many of, uh, elite people in our, in our country have, are, have used people and manipulated people to get what they want and are all doing so at the same time to convince them of their truth. Have you noticed that even, even if we just divide the line between Democrats and Republicans, have you noticed that both sides are warning you of the exact same thing? They're going to destroy the country. You should be afraid of what's going to happen. Follow me. Is that not the song and dance of every politician? I'm the one telling the truth. Trust me. Everyone. And it's almost like leadership is infiltrated with this belief of manipulating people and manipulating truth in order to get what you want. That's, the, that's all it is. Scripture is truth, right? Manipulating truth in order to get what you want. And what does, God say, what does Jesus say about them? I will wage war. I will wage war with them. You know, this should show us how much God cares about his people. That to where even when we are led astray, he will hold the person that tempted you or, or, or fooled you accountable to, to the point where he says, I will wage war. That is, that is a different take on Jesus than the thin-lipped, white, European, frizzy-haired guy that we see. He's waging war against people that attack you, that lie to you, that try to, try to deceive you. That's how much he cares for his people. And God forbid we to be in a place of that manipulation, to us being the manipulators. And what it also shows us is that we should not allow those, that kind of manipulation around us. That when we know what truth is, we should not be timid to call, call out a lie that's right in front of us. Y'all dig what I'm saying? Because if Jesus is waging a war against that, then that means we are waging war against that. We, are, we should be the bridge, the bridge builders of truth instead of, of let, waiting for the next guy to do it. Jesus calls us to wage war like that, to protect his people. Y'all feel me? Now, the other thing that we see is a huge lack of reverence and conviction in these people. It says that they, uh, when it says eating things off uh, sacrifice to idols, Paul uh, talks to us in the New Testament about how eating food sacrificed to idols is, uh, is, is 
or eating food sacrificed to these other gods who are not really gods at all means nothing. He, he literally says, don't even bother asking, was this food offered to an idol or not? That, it's, that if someone uh, offers you food, just eat it. But he says, if someone specifically tells you this food was offered to an idol, then choose not to eat it just for their conscience so that they can recognize that you are not worshiping a false god. And so what we're seeing here is, is straight up a lack of reverence and conviction for things that are spiritual. I feel like uh, when, we're, when we're hitting on this, this specific area, this is where a lot of Christians miss the mark. And that is a lack of reverence and conviction. We make so many, we make so many excuses of why we, do, we don't need to take aspects of our faith seriously. We, we, we make these excuses to feel good in the moment. And we, we push off conviction, we push off reverence, and we treat things that are holy, things that are special, as ordinary. And even if we're to just think about, like, the name of God. The Bible says, don't blaspheme the name of God. And think about how loosely we, uh, we as a culture in America just use God's name in vain. That's a, that's a really just simple idea. We do things way crazier, but let's just look there. The name of God, the name that has given us life, not only given us life, but the name that made sacrifice and redemption for us, we use in vain. As, as though it's something ordinary. As though it's something that can be used, uh, if I was saying, dang it, or crap, I could just use God's name in place of that. Do y'all see how that simple, that simple context is using something so incredibly special and treating it as ordinary? Now look at the other things of God. Even when, it think, uh, when you think about the idea of, like, say, tithing. For, for us as a church, when we receive uh, people's tithes, that is something special. It, it's, it's money is money, but because it was uh, given in that aspect of reverence, we should treat it with that same reverence. To where we should treat it with good stewardship. Y'all feel what I'm saying? Because we're handling not just money, but we're handling people's tithes in which they, they trusted to God through us. And so in these different analogies that I'm giving, we need to really get it together when it comes to having reverence for the things of God in our life. And, and having a stronger conviction for spirituality. And then finally... It says sexual immorality. Now, this is one where everyone like looks the other way, right? It's like sexual immorality is is probably the, in my belief, my opinion, the the number one issue of sin in our world. Not just America, but our world altogether. The way I see it is that uh, sex is just. Uh, is just the best drug ever created, and God made it. It's not like when God made Adam and Eve, and they had sex, they came out of a bush and said, Hey, God, guess what? <laughs> and God wasn't like, Y'all did that? I mean, the parts fit? I mean, that's weird. No, he, he specifically designed every pleasure sensor in our body. Think about that. He specifically made it to feel pleasurable 
and it is is literally the most pleasuring thing in the world. Anyone, everyone's like, why did I come to church today? I've been struggling with this. It, and so I believe it is really, when it comes to taking that God-given sex out of context, it is the biggest struggle of, of mankind to where we consistently see in Scripture that sexual immorality is what consistently draws people away from God. And that it always is a thread that ends up uh, pulling out more and more. It ends up going to so many other places, but sexual immorality is like that stronghold that people can't get over. And for Jesus to, re- to give this correction and this, this intense rebuke to sexual immorality to this church, I believe that he cares about the purity in our lives, the sexual, uh, the sexual influences that we have in our life. And if we continue to try to keep this as a thing that we never talk about, it's just something under the rug, everyone does it, no one talks about it except outside of church, but inside of church we never talk about it. it it's kind of like instead of talking about sex in church, we'll just talk about prayer. That's something none of us do, but we all talk about. But sex, that's something we all do, but no one talks about. Y'all feel what I'm saying? We need to really flip that around because this is, this is an issue that, that, that people just feel like is too difficult to really address. And it's just high time for us to really start pursuing a, a type of holiness within our sex lives that we can aspire to. I feel like a lot of people just look at this and think, well, I can't do that. Well, next, <laughs> I'll just never try. And I still remember the moment when I gave my life to Christ and I was growing closer and closer. And the day I realized I was about to go on a date with a girl and I realized, wait a minute, I'm not supposed to have sex. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> well, what's the point of all this? <laughs> and me as such an immature kid, I didn't realize you know, the greatness of companionship. I was like, what the hell? Well, what's the point of dating at all? And, and I had to make a decision right then and there. Am I going to continue to have sex or not? Am I going to continue to have premarital sex or not? And it was a decision that I made right then and there that really changed the, the complete trajectory of my Christian walk. Because from that, the moment that I decided I wanted to be pure, it didn't mean that I was going to be perfect, but it, mean, it meant that I was going to start a, a journey, a trajectory into the path of holiness, into the path of purity. Y'all feel what I'm saying? And no matter how many times I might fall, I can always get back up and keep walking. And that's what a lot of people don't grasp on, when it comes to the concept of sexual purity is that, well, if I mess up, I, I lost. No, it's not about winning or losing. It's just about getting back up and walking. Because it is a difficult thing to do. It is incredibly difficult to, to be sexually pure or to walk in the direction of sexual purity. But it is important. It's a decision that has to be made in a Christian's life. And I truly believe that when we make the decision not to and try to just ignore it, that we are simply behaving like these Nicolaitans that Jesus is talking about. And he makes it so clear that he doesn't want to put up with that, that he is not down with that. Because what we're saying is, God, you can have all of my heart, 
And what we're saying is, God, I, I want to be holy unto you. W-H-O-L-L-Y. I'm all yours, but I don't want to be holy. And what I believe is that this two-edged sword he talks about in the beginning, we see the aspect of what it is for Jesus, but I really believe it's what Jesus calls us to be too. Is this two-edged sword where one side of this sword is all of our mind, our thoughts, our emotions, and committing that to him. And I feel like that's the easy part that we're able to give God. We're down to like, yes, God, have all of me, yes. But the other side of that sword that, that needs to be just as sharp is holy, holy and holy. And he calls us to sharpen that holiness. Just as he causes, causes us to, to sharpen our whole hearts, he calls us to sharpen that holiness. And notice that you can sharpen a sword for so long. And it's like our whole lives we're trying to sharpen this holy aspect of the sword. And it's never going to be ready until the day that Jesus returns. But if we were to just neglect this duty of pursuing holiness, of, of sharpening the sword, we're going to be so, so dull on Judgment Day to where we're not going to be a two-edged sword. We might be one-sided, but he calls us to be a two-edged sword. Y'all feel what I'm saying? And again, this is not an idea that we are immediately perfect. This is about just simply making a decision saying, I'm going to try my best and forget the rest. The days that I fall, I'm going to get back up. And even if I fall a hundred times, then the next hundred days, <laughs> the next 50 days, I don't know, I'm going to get back up every single time. Y'all feel that? We need to pursue this direction even if it means we're not perfect, because we're not. You know, this leads us to, so that gives us this idea that he's understanding with our shortcomings, but he's also strict to who he calls us to be. And finally, he's hidden hesitations. Remember this last part of the verse. So what we see is, we have this affirmation, we have this, but I have these things against you. And now here it says, therefore repent. As we start this verse, I want to say we often stall the gifts of God in our life because of our hesitation to change. Even as I gave this like big, big calling to be sexually pure, don't we just immediately feel this hesitation like, nah. We feel this hesitation right away. We often stall the gifts of God in our life because of our hesitation to change. Let's read this final verse. Therefore, repent, which just means change direction. It's not a cuss word. It's not a bad word. It's not so scary and impossible to do. It just says, change directions. Or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. The one who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone, which no one knows except for the one who receives it. This, this part where it says, repent, I'm coming quickly. What he's saying is, is do something. He's urging us to make a change in our lifestyle. He's urging us to make a change in our convictions. He's urging us to make a change in our hearts. And he gives this impression of needing it to be done ASAP. How many times have we put off something that we knew God was calling us to do 
And we keep saying, well, next week I'll start going. Well, next week I'm going to start doing that. Next year, <laughs> once the new year starts, then I'll take God seriously. And every time, that tomorrow always turns into the next day, the next day, the next month, next year. And we just keep putting off. We keep hesitating to start. But he says, I'm coming quickly. He gives this urgency. And he makes it so clear that he does not give any room for those who manipulate scripture or people for their own gain. He declares this war on these people, just like we just went over. We, we truly need to delete the image of this emotional, sensitive Jesus from our minds. Jesus empathizes with our emotions. He identifies with us, just like we learned last week. But Jesus is also straight up, and he is strong, and he doesn't play games. He died on the cross. That was a big gesture. That was a huge gesture to us. He died on the cross, and he is serious about his mission and his people. When you realize, when you really think about the concept that Jesus says in Scripture that even if just one person, even if it was just you who were, who were to be the only one to trust in his salvation out of the entire world, billions of people, that it would have been worth it. This excruciating endearment of the cross. He says, even if it was just you, even he would leave everything else for the one. See, what, what that, that moves my heart. That kind of love, that kind of kindness moves my heart. And it, it pushes me to a deeper conviction. It pushes me to a deeper lifestyle, to a deeper heart. But only when I reflect on the, on the realness and the rawness of Jesus dying on the cross. If I forget that part, then, there's, then I lose the urgency to change. What I'm saying is that the level of our repentance is directly connected to our revelation of Jesus on the cross. If you feel like you're not moved in your heart to repent of something or to make a change, then I would urge you to, to look deeper into the sacrifice made on the cross because it's only if you can understand what Jesus really gave to you, what he really sacrificed, that it would urge you to a, a deeper repentance. Y'all feel what I'm saying? And his promise to those who listen to this call and overcome, I really believe that it's an overcoming within our society, within our world, and it's also an overcoming within ourselves. The, the biggest reason that people uh, abandon their faith in America is not because of outside pressure, but because of the inward desires that we have, the inward things that we want, but we know we shouldn't. Y'all dig that? And it's those inward issues that Jesus is calling us to overcome. If you've spoken to anybody that has broken out of addictions, they truly overcame the demons within themselves. And that's when we think about uh, stories we hear of people def uh, getting victory over over alcoholism, over heroin, over uh, what uh, getting out of a gang, whatever. It's like wow, they really overcame the things within themselves. But when we think about like oh well, it's just a little sex, it's just a little this, it's just a little that. We we try to minimize our issues to make them out to be not big demons at all. Oh, that's just a little pet demon. It's okay. It's it's fine. 
But Jesus calls us to overcome those things within ourselves. And he has a promise for three specific things. He says hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. When it says hidden manna, manna was a, 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 almost like a honey-flavored a bread-like substance or wafer-like substance that would appear on the dew of the ground in the mornings for the people of Israel when they had no food to eat. It was a miracle. Uh, it was a miracle of God's provision feeding His people. And when He says, "I'll give you some of the hidden manna," what He is saying is, that "I'm gonna. It, it's something sweet. It's something special. Something unique to you because it wasn't offered to everybody else. It was something hidden away just for you." And it will appear at just the right time when you need it the most. See, this, this prophetic image of hidden manna, something sweet, a special gift that is unique to you, so personal to you, and coming at the right time when you need it the most. I feel like when you talk to people that have lived years as a strong Christian, they could tell you what those hidden manas were in their life. But when we live subpar and try to give Jesus the leftovers of our life just because we don't want to go to hell instead of pursuing a relationship with him, we never really experience what that hidden manna is for us. We're just always discontent and unsatisfied in our lives. The other thing he says is, I'll give you a white stone. See, and the way that they did court in those days is whenever someone went on trial, the, the jury would cast either a white stone or a black stone. The black stone meant guilty, the white stone meant innocent. So when he says, I will give you a white stone, what he's saying is, I will declare your innocence. I will declare your redemption. You will not be guilty on judgment day. But if we stop hesitating to grow closer to him. And it says on this white stone, he'll be given a new name that no one will understand except for the person who receives it. I really... Just like it's so powerful that Jesus is, he is so personal with his people. He's talking so generally, but we can look at this and see how personal it is to an individual. This is unique to you. It says a new name, which means that your past no longer defines you. Anything that you've ever regret, regretted doing does not define you when Jesus gives you this new stone, this new name. And on it, you're given this new name that only you would know what it means. How, you, only you would see how special it is. Because only you have experienced the sorrows you experienced in life. Only you had to go through those things that you had to go through. And only you knows what it feels like to overcome those things. And so this, this new name gives you a purpose and a mission that is so specific to you. It is so specific because it's directly connected to the past you've just been forgiven of. And it's, it gives you a direction that is very, very personal to you. It's where it's just like, you know, this is what I need to be doing. And even as I'm saying this, some of you already are, are getting an idea of what, what direction that is. You're already feeling like you, you know what Jesus is telling you. And it's so directly connected to your past but you, you no longer see your past as this blemish, but you see your past as like this footstool for you to step up higher, to reach higher, to do something different, to do something greater. But it's only when we decide to stop hesitating. Stop making these 
these excuses that we know deep down are just excuses and just grow closer to him and make the changes that we need to change. Not because it's the change that saves us, because it's the change that grows us simply closer to him. I want us to all bow our heads and close our eyes. And I know that God is speaking to us today. And if you're here and this, this message is moving on your heart, I want you to just think to yourself and have this moment of personal time with Jesus and just pray to him right now, which just means talk to him. Just talk to Jesus right now and get some clarity. Say, Jesus, what is it you're calling me to change right now? What is it that you're calling me to right now? Jesus, would you please make it clear to me what you're trying to say to me right now? God will speak to you. It is something personal that I can't tell you, only Him. And now I want you to, to just have this moment. And when you believe that you are, are getting that direction, when you hear Jesus, the Holy Spirit, telling you what that is, you need to answer back. You need to just say either yes, I will, or just admit and say, I'm not ready yet. Just know that, remember, that I'm not ready yet, that hesitation will keep, will, will stall the gifts of God in your life. But if you say yes, even though you're timid, even though you're, you're nervous, you will start moving in the, the best direction of your life. And if you're here today, or anyone listening online, and you're thinking to yourself, I need to just start walking with Jesus right now. And you need to make that first step of entering a relationship with him. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't try to get everything out of the way first, but let today be the day of salvation for you. And the Bible says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is who he said he is, that he died on the cross and rose from the dead, that he's the son of God, that surely you shall be saved. And I urge you to not make that prayer, don't have that conversation with God just for hell insurance, but have that conversation with Him to, to enter into a real authentic relationship with your Creator. Take a moment. If that's you, make that conversation happen right now. And if you're here and maybe you're just thinking, well, I know that I'm walking with God, but I know that I need to grow closer to God right now. Have a conversation with him saying, here I am, God. I want to I just reignite. I want to grow hotter. I want to grow closer to you. Help me, Holy Spirit. God, I thank you for everything that you're doing and your people. And I pray that you cause them to experience your presence right now. That they wouldn't feel any more hesitations, but that they would feel the boldness and courage to rise up and reach to what you're calling them to reach for. I pray that you finish what you started in their lives. In Jesus' name.
Amen. I hope you enjoyed the message today. If you did, there's a couple things that you could do to connect. First is to subscribe to our show so that the most recent episode will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And second is if this ministry has impacted you and you'd like to help us continue to reach others, you can click the link in the description or visit our website, gravetop.com, and you can give now. I'll see you next time on the Gravetop Church Podcast.